0: Episode 42, the moment of killing. I live on a rural property and on this property we keep chickens. Today I had to kill one of these chickens because it was very unwell and killing it was the kindest thing to do. To kill the chicken, I placed her neck under an iron pipe, stood both feet on the pipe either side of the chicken's head and pulled up sharply on her body. This snaps the neck and ends the hen's life almost instantly. Unlike the movies where animals or people just fall down dead when a chicken dies by having its neck snapped, all impulse control the brain has over the body ends and the wings flap and the legs go through the motions of running. It's all reflexes but to the uninitiated it can be unnerving. My youngest daughter loves our animals, she tends to our guinea pigs, our rabbit, walks our dog and feeds the chickens. This was our third chicken in three days that had died. Some sort of infection had got into our chicken yard. And two had died overnight, and the other two my wife and I had to kill ourselves. My daughter dug the hole for today's hen and looked away as I ended its life. I took the spade from her to bury it so she didn't have to. Death is not easy to deal with, even if if it's only a chicken. But those of you who live in a rural lifestyle understand the necessity. Animals are born, they live, and they die. Sometimes we have to decide when they die. There is a moment when you have in front of you a living, moving, feeling animal and then you don't. That moment when you have to decide to take the action that will end the animal's life is always hard. I have to steal myself. In fact my wife killed the last hen and asked if I could do it today and she was feeling bad about it. Seeing a dead animal that was killed by disease or by accident is different to seeing one killed by your own hand. You know it was because of direct action that you took that the animal in front of you is dead. It was intentional. When I was growing up, my father was a keen hunter. He shot mostly wild possums, goats or rabbits. When I was in my late teens or early 20s, I can't remember which, I went goat hunting with him. We stalked a goat and Dad shot it. The goat ran off and we had to track it. Dad's bullet had skimmed the underside of the goat's stomach and when we found it, Its gut was hanging out and the animal had been dragging it through the bush. It was a horrible situation because the animal would have been in a lot of pain. Of course, Dad killed it to put it out of its misery, but that day haunted him. It rattled him and he lost his will to kill for a while. Nowadays, if he goes out, it's just to shoot at rabbits where the chances of a slow death are very low. Why am I talking about killing animals? Well, if any of you listening have had to kill something, either by shooting it or using a crude tool such as an iron pipe, then you know about the moment of killing, that instant where the animal passes from being alive to dead. You see it in the eyes mostly, life goes out of them. Even the chicken, which from a distance might seem to be fighting for life by flapping its wings and pumping its legs, has the vacant eyes of the deceased. Does experiencing the act of killing belong as part of a warrior mindset? Well of course it does, but I don't believe it is necessary for every person who takes action to protect others or keep them safe. There may be some extreme circumstances where killing may be the action that is appropriate for the situation. War is the obvious one, but even if the act of killing can be justified, like breaking the neck of a sick chicken, or shooting the enemy in combat, this doesn't make it easier. I'm going to read an excerpt from an article called Hiding in the Shadows of the Warrior. It is written by Alice Amda and can be found in his book, Dueling with o Grappling with the Myth of the Warrior Sage. This is not the first time I have referred to this article. In fact, if you listen to episode 1 of this podcast, you will hear reference to this section there as well. It describes an intense bout of training in araki an old Japanese martial tradition, where Alice is pitted against a fellow practitioner, called Maida. I'm going to read directly from the book, so bear with me. Maida-san, I roared. Anigashimasu, if you please. And at that second, I came at him, slashing at his head. He blocked my weapon with his, but being much larger, I twisted and smashed him with my shoulder, sending him falling to the mat. He didn't get up and said something about wanting to stop. Furious, I began to hit him in the body with my weapon, full force, again and again. I could hear the blows thud, then crack, depending on whether I struck bone or muscle. He somehow rolled and came to his feet, but I continued to rain crushing blows upon him so powerfully that they smashed his own weapon into his face protected by the Kindor mask. Once again he blocked me, and I knocked him over. He rolled uncontrollably for a moment and ended up crouched on one knee about ten feet away curled protectively around himself. I sprung forward to slash him from overhead with all my might. Like a cornered rat, he suddenly leapt upwards, teeth bared, screaming, and swung his chin-eye up from the ground, whistling through the air. The very end of it hit the very tip of my penis. To say it hurt is meaningless. I was in total shock, where every nerve in my body Gibbering in burning, scraping agony, I bent over myself thinking, I need a break, praying for release from the pain, easy enough for me to say once I was the one hurting, but Maida sighted along the line of my bent-over neck and raised his shin I rising on tiptoes to smash it at right angles to my exposed spinal column. My instructor yelled, Maida! This shout caused him to pause one fraction of a second, and I whirled and butted him under the chin, ramming him against a wall and then down to the floor, me on top, pinning him. I'd lost any sense that this was practice. He was a coward. I tried to help him by fighting him hard enough to bring him through his fear. He hurt me, and now I would destroy him. No, these were not my thoughts. It was the trajectory of my rage. I butted him several times, mask upon mask, and frustrated with this, ripped his mask off his head. He was absolutely helpless, his eyes wide, were vulnerable as a baby. I raised the butt of my weapon to smash him between the eyes, and my instructor grabbed me from behind, hauling me off, yelling at me for losing control as if to say, what's your problem, it's only training. Yet I felt he approved of all I did, except for the moment I doubled over in pain. Mida was more or less ignored. We practiced a while longer, me against my teacher and against Kawashima, the other practitioner of the day. But the intensity was thankfully gone for that day. I recall changing clothes after this training, Maida, Kawashima and I, all of us covered in welts, one part of me still singing a melody of pain I had never imagined experiencing. My instructor and Kawashima had that hearty, somewhat stupid satisfaction that perhaps only men know, the afterglow of smashing each other around with no malice at all, a hug with impact, as it were. Myra and I both imitated this devout joviality, but we could not meet each other's eyes. We were best friends and we tried to kill each other, but we were not equal in this. Myra had been in a killing rage, but it was in righteous self-defence, where I had listened to him plead, heard him say he couldn't take any more, and I hated him for his weakness. Wait a minute, the tougher among you might say. This was that spiritual forging you wrote about in previous chapters. You were striving to burn out the flaws from your character, the defects that kept you from exerting your will with integrity and bravery. How is this short story so different from older stories we've all read of rugged training where an individual might face 100 opponents a day for three days? Some of you may recall incidents in your own training equally harsh, but carried out to a positive end. Still, at the end of this day, such a philosophical stance was meaningless. I was no longer training in those minutes. At the moment I ripped his mask off, I would have driven the butt of my weapon into his brain, smashed him in the eyes with my forehead. I would have bit his face off. End quote. There was a moment in that exchange between Alice and Maida that both men knew one was about to try and kill the other. Not just play at it, as we often do in the martial arts, but actually try to seriously harm or kill the other. Mida would have known it, Alice knew it, and Alice's instructor knew it because he intervened to stop the bout. Alice writes this article so that we do not glorify the word warrior. Some of you may know the books by Dan Millman, where he redefines the warrior as someone who balances the spiritual with the mundane. However, as Alice writes, a warrior is instead a flawed and guilty human being like you or I, Warriors risk death and deal death. End quote. An article on the Psychology Today website talks about the psychological repercussions of killing. This article, titled Death Becomes Us, The Psychological Trauma of Killing, explains that, and I quote, Apart from about 2% of individuals classified as psychopaths, who because of deeply rooted personality flaws are unfazed by the act of killing, Most soldiers are unprepared for the task of ending the life of another human being. Many veterans report that ending even one life is enough to haunt them with painful memories and sometimes flashbacks. Soldiers who have engaged in close combat are left with a much higher likelihood of developing post-traumatic stress disorder than their counterparts who did not. All this theory has its place, but let's hear from those who have killed others for a job. Military combat veterans. I asked for the opinion of two combat veterans I know. This is what they said about the moment of killing. The first veteran has worked in special forces operations and been deployed overseas. This is what he says. I dropped bombs on people and also shot people. I'm happy to speak about it. Shooting someone stuck with me. I mean they all did. I had no problems doing it. I did what I had to do within our legal requirements of the government. I was the hunted and I turned it around. I have a scar on my forehead, thanks to this drug lord Taliban shithead. We took machine gun fire from this compound. To reach the point of entry, we needed to run about 85 to 100 meters over open terrain. It was done in a typical military style. I was in the assault by fire team, and we had a support by fire team suppressing the target. Of course, over the closing distance, we took rounds. I had ricochet hit me above the glasses. We made entry to the compound. Multiple engagements happened. I went into a room first and engaged an Afghan male. Emotions zero. At the time I was elated. I took a piece of shit off the battlefield. Might sound crazy, but there is a warrior spirit. The samurai believed it, and so do I. End quote. Here's another quote from a veteran who was in the infantry, deployed to both Afghanistan and Iraq. I've never been in a situation where I was almost within arm's reach distance and saw the enemy fall. Our engagement with the enemy was from a distance. When we returned fire and had the contacts in Afghan, it was much different than Iraq. We all had the opportunity to fire our weapon systems, unlike in Iraq. For me, when I returned fire, it was almost automatic. Training took over and it was effortless. Not much thought went into an action that was instilled into us many times during training. Adrenaline pumped through our bodies and it was around long after each contact. I felt good at the time. We trained for exactly that type of engagement. It was either them or us. But yeah, it was a controlled type of action. None of us took anything lightly during our tour in Afghan. Survival instinct takes over. Training takes over. And everything and every action was a well-thought risk assessment. Felt numb as well. Not sad, happy or anything like that. End quote. Firstly, I'd like to thank both those gentlemen for being so welcoming and accessible when I asked them about the moment of killing. These men, who have taken lives and risked their own lives, have interesting perspectives to share. Although both experienced combat in a very different way, both mentioned that it was about survival, them or us. The space instinct is that if I don't kill, the other person will certainly kill me. There is no navel-gazing in the moment of killing. There is no time for that. I had the luxury to consider my feelings and actions around killing a chicken. People in combat don't have that luxury, nor should they want it. Should someone consider their actions and hesitate, they may be killed. As mentioned before, training provides actions that become automatic and hopefully save lives. I also want to emphasize that the two men I spoke to certainly were affected by the killing they did in their military careers. It still sits with them, but at the moment of killing, many years ago now, emotion didn't factor into it. They had a job to do, and they did it. Miyamoto Masashi, the famous Japanese sword saint, is very clear about what to do at the moment of killing. To cut and to slash are two different things. Cutting, whatever form of cutting it is, is decisive, with a resolute spirit. Slashing is nothing more than touching the enemy. Even if you slash strongly, and even if the enemy dies instantly, it is slashing. When you cut, your spirit is resolved. End quote. To me, Misashi is saying that a warrior must commit to the cut. His whole spirit is behind it. Full intent. As mentioned earlier, zero emotion. Otherwise it becomes just a slash. In some of the kata I perform in my Koryu Pujitsu practice, if we do not do the actions with the correct intent, in other words, with the absolute certainty I am cutting the enemy, the movement often fails because my partner feels the difference and finds an opening to counter. There is one kata in particular where as the opponent cuts down, must, one must perform an almost suicidal movement that seems counterintuitive. However, If performed with absolute resolve and with a feeling of attacking rather than defending, the action will flummox the attacker, break his rhythm and assure one's victory. I have been on the receiving end of this movement against the headmaster of my school and it messed up my mental processing so much that when I went back to training with my initial partner, my brain couldn't sequence my actions. I had to stop a moment to reset before I could carry on training. It is one of the first kata taught in our school. And it still challenges me to this day. It would seem that in the moment of killing, there is no emotion, just action. The thinking, rationalisation and feelings attached to that action comes either before or sometimes long afterwards. They simply aren't a factor in the moment. I hope you took something away from today's episode. As usual, please contact me if you have any questions or thoughts on the topic. You can also contact me through Instagram at Musha Sugar Podcast or email me at mushasugarpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you are so inclined, I do have a Patreon account set up if you wish to help me that way. Now for the quote of the episode. This is by Miyamoto Musashi. When you take up the sword, you must feel intent on cutting the enemy. As you cut the enemy, You must not change your grip and your hands must not cower.